Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, November 7th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Jordan and Israel coordinate an airdrop of medical aid to Gaza Hospital. While Gaza's death toll reportedly exceeds 10,000, as Israel essentially splits Gaza in two. A new poll suggests Trump is leading in five of six battleground states. U.S. and EU officials reportedly broached the topic of peace negotiations with Ukraine. Saudi Arabia and Russia will continue voluntary cuts in oil production. U.S. Secretary of State Blinken travels to Iraq amid brewing regional tension. Republican Peter Meyer enters the Michigan Senate race. Donald Trump testifies in his tense civil fraud trial. A tragic earthquake kills over 150 in Nepal. And a prominent radio journalist is shot to death on air in the Philippines. In our top story, Jordan and Israel coordinate an airdrop of medical aid to Gaza Hospital. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Arab News, The New Arab, Forbes, Jerusalem Post, and Guardian. Jordan's King Abdullah II announced on Monday that the country airdropped, quote, urgent medical aid to a Jordanian field hospital in the Gaza Strip as concerns regarding supply shortages and overcrowded hospitals grow amid Israel's conflict with Hamas. Jordan's state news agency reported that supplies were about to run out due to the delay of delivering aid through Rafah crossing, thus necessitating the airdrop. In a social media post, Abdullah said, quote, This is our duty to aid our brothers and sisters injured in the war on Gaza. We will always be there for our Palestinian brethren. An anonymous U.S. official told the Times of Israel that the U.S. and Israel had coordinated with Jordan to deliver the aid as Israel controls the airspace over Gaza. The Israeli military said that the aid will, quote, be used by the medical staff for patients and also included food. The airdrop comes as relations between Jordan and Israel have deteriorated amid the most recent fighting in Gaza. Jordan recalled its ambassador to Israel last week, saying that Israel's bombardment of Gaza had killed innocents and caused a humanitarian catastrophe. Nearly 10,000 people in Gaza have been killed since the conflict began on October 7th, after Hamas launched a surprise attack into Israel that killed 1,400 people. The Israeli military has encircled Gaza City in the north of the Strip, as the U.S. continues to push for a regional consensus on the conflict. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Eric laid out the facts for us, and here's our first spin, the pro-Palestine narrative from Al Jazeera. Though the Jordanian airdrop of aid into Gaza is an important move to alleviate the Strip's worsening humanitarian crisis, it's merely a drop in the bucket as Gaza faces shortages of food, water, electricity, and fuel caused by Israel's blockade and relentless and reckless bombing. Israel has created an unprecedented humanitarian crisis. We follow that up with a pro-Israel narrative coming from Jerusalem Post. Israel is well aware of the suffering of Gazans under Hamas's terrorist leadership and has been open to allowing the flow of humanitarian aid into the Strip. Tel Aviv is focused on the national security priority of defeating Hamas, which has been trying to steal aid meant for civilians and has absolutely no interest in causing unnecessary suffering for civilians. And from time to time, we feature statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they predict a 31% chance that a state-based conflict between Israel and Iran will cause at least 1,000 deaths before the year 2025. 
And more news from this conflict. The Gaza death toll exceeds 10,000 as the IDF says the territory is essentially split in two. And more news from this conflict. The IDF says Gaza is split in two as the death toll exceeds 10,000. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Al Jazeera, and the Associated Press. In 31 days of unrelenting Israeli airstrikes on the Gaza Strip, in combination with a blockade on food, water, fuel, and medicine, the territory's health ministry said on Monday that upwards of 10,000 Palestinians have now been killed since October 7th. Thousands more are believed to be trapped under the rubble. Airstrikes on Gaza in the last 24 hours were reportedly the most intense they'd been in any day since the bombardment campaign started, according to reporting from The Guardian. This comes as Israeli forces continue to use the cover of strikes for a ground operation in the territory. Daniel Hagari, a spokesman for the Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, said on Monday that Israeli forces had surrounded Gaza City in the north, essentially splitting the territory in two. He said, today there is North Gaza and South Gaza. The comments come as Israeli media reported that a forceful entry into Gaza City was expected within the next 48 hours. Meanwhile, dozens of rallies calling on Israel to halt its bombardment of Gaza continued to be held in major cities across the world over the weekend. Among them were Washington, D.C., London, and Paris, as well as Berlin and Rome. In a rare move, the heads of 18 U.N. agencies and non-governmental organizations, including UNICEF, Save the Children, and the World Food Program also called for an immediate ceasefire in the war. The letter described the killings of both Israelis and Palestinians over the past month as horrific and expressed shock and horror at the mounting death toll. It comes as the conflict officially became the deadliest ever for UN workers, with 88 so far killed in Gaza. Separately, at least 150 health workers have also been killed. More than 100 health facilities have also reportedly been damaged. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts. Our first spin is a pro-Israel narrative. It's coming from the Times of Israel. While the images depicting the destruction in Gaza, along the high number of casualties as a result of Israeli airstrikes, may be distressing, they need to be put in the context of other wars. Wars are inevitably destructive, and this one was started by Hamas, and Israel was forced to respond to a catastrophic terror attack. Al-Arabia responds with a pro-Palestine narrative. While Hamas's attack on Israel cannot be condoned, that does not justify Israel's response, in which it has killed thousands of Palestinian civilians, the vast majority of which have no affiliation to Hamas. This is a collective punishment on the Palestinians, and it needs to be called out. And the nerds from Metaculus give us their nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by November 2059. A new poll shows Trump winning in five battleground states. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, USA Today, CBS, and ABC News. A new poll conducted by the New York Times and Siena College and released Sunday shows former President Donald Trump leading President Joe Biden in five of the six most important battleground states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, one year before a potential rematch of those candidates in 2024. Biden, who lost the four states by four to ten points each, only won the sixth battleground state of Wisconsin, where he held a two-point lead. Meanwhile, a new CBS YouGov reports more voters believe they will be better off financially if Trump defeats Biden. And more voters think Trump has a better chance of keeping the U.S. out of a war if he returns to the White House. In addition, 73% of Americans believe things are going badly in America, the most in calendar year 2023. 
A third poll released by ABC News, Ipsos, similarly shows 76% of Americans believing the country is headed in the wrong direction, with 23% thinking the U.S. is headed in the right direction. The ABC News Ipsos poll also shows 33% of Americans viewing Biden favorably, with 29% holding a favorable view of Trump. Thanks for that update on the race, Eric. We have a Democratic narrative from CNBC. We're a year from the 2024 election, and by almost every economic measure, the U.S. is making economic gains and successfully emerging from the COVID era. If voters aren't feeling the financial benefits and are in turn blaming Biden, then the president and his campaign have a year to rally voters to a strong electoral victory. Plus, polls are also showing that Trump's morass of legal woes could swing polls strongly in Biden's favor if the former president is convicted. The pro-Trump narrative comes from Fox News. There's no way for Democrats or the Biden administration to sugarcoat this. The U.S. has serious issues and there is global chaos on Biden's watch. Biden's, quote, big government tendencies and ineffective policies have caused this and show no signs of getting better. A return of the Trump administration is the only way out. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. It says there's a 43% chance Trump would win a 2024 presidential election versus Joe Biden. U.S. and EU officials broach the topic of peace negotiations with Ukraine. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by NBC, Kyiv Post, and Politico. Officials from the U.S. and the EU have reportedly approached the Ukrainian government in order to raise the subject of possible peace negotiations with Russia, according to one current and one former U.S. official who spoke to NBC News. The sources told the publication that the topic was raised at last month's meeting of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, a regular summit of more than 50 nations that provide Ukraine with weapons and support. The talks described as delicate reportedly included broad outlines of what Ukraine might need to give up, in order to reach a peace deal. It follows concerns from officials that the war has reached a stalemate and that Ukraine is running out of forces. However, in a live interview with NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky insisted that he's not ready for negotiations with Russia. He added that the U.S. and other countries know his position and that the Russians have to go out from our territory. Only after that, the world can switch on diplomacy. Zelensky also addressed the report in a Saturday press conference with EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who made an unannounced visit to Ukraine. Zelensky said, No leader of the United States or European Union, our partners, nobody puts pressure on us for us sitting at the negotiation table with Russia to give something away. It has never been like this and it never will be. Meanwhile, in an interview with Politico published on Monday, Andril Yermak, Zelensky's chief of staff, hit out at Western countries that may be experiencing, quote, war fatigue. It comes after Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney, in a call with Russian pranksters impersonating the head of the African Union, said there was a lot of fatigue from all sides and that everyone understands that we need a way out. In response, Yermak said, even if there are people who feel this fatigue, I'm sure they don't want to wake up in a world tomorrow where there will be less freedom and less security and the consequences of this last for decades. He suggested that Maloney needed to brush up on her history and ask, what would have happened to Britain or Poland if the U.S. felt the same fatigue in World War II? Scott, thanks for those facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from NBC. While the West stands ready to support Ukraine, the front lines have not shifted in months, and there are concerns about how many more troops the country can field for battle. Nothing is decided. And it's Ukraine's decision, but perhaps now is the right time to start thinking about how the war can be brought to a close. And Kyiv Post brings us a pro-Ukraine narrative 
As Ukraine has made clear many times, it will not negotiate with terrorists who are legally occupying the country's territory. Once Russia withdraws all its troops from Ukraine, only then can there be talk of diplomacy. TASS gives us a pro-Russia narrative. As Russia has reiterated time and time again, Moscow stands ready to have meaningful discussions with Ukraine and its Western allies to bring the war to a close. However, as Russia has stipulated, this peace is dependent on Ukraine not aligning with NATO. And another nerd narrative from Attaculus, there's a 1% chance there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before the year 2023. Saudi Arabia and Russia plan to continue voluntary oil cuts. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The National, TASS, NASDAQ, BBC News, and the Kyiv Independent. The two major global oil producers, Saudi Arabia and Russia, reaffirmed their commitment to further oil production cuts through to the end of the year on Sunday. The move by the OPEC Plus members comes as tensions in the Middle East continue to weigh on the global crude oil markets. Saudi Arabia, the world's leading oil exporter, will maintain a voluntary production cut of 1 million barrels per day that began in July, reducing output to about 9 million barrels per day, or BPD, in December, an official source from the Kingdom's Energy Ministry said. The source added that the decision will be reviewed next month. Russia, in turn, will voluntarily continue the cuts in oil and oil products by 300,000 barrels per day until the end of the year, Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak announced on Sunday. The measure follows Moscow's decision last April to cut oil production by 500 BPD, effective until late December 2024, following the announcement by the world's top oil exporters. In line with analysts' expectations, oil prices picked up moderately on Monday. Brent crude futures rose 41 cents, or 0.5 percent, to $85.30 per barrel, while crude West Texas intermediate rose 54 cents, or 0.7 percent, to 81.05 per barrel. While oil prices are currently forecast to fall to $81 per barrel, the World Bank recently warned that oil prices could rise to between $140 and $157 per barrel if the conflict in the Middle East escalates further. This scenario would trigger a sharp rise in global energy and food prices. OPEC Plus, comprising the members of the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, and key allies, including Russia, has been cutting output since 2023. The move, which the alliance says is aimed at ensuring global market stability, was criticized by U.S. President Joe Biden, who warned Riyadh of, quote, consequences in 2022. Thanks, Eric. CNN brings us Narrative A. While OPEC leader Saudi Arabia pretends that the continued production cuts are aimed at stabilizing the global crude oil market, the main goal is to boost prices. By cutting supply, however, Saudi Arabia is shooting itself in the foot as Saudi gross domestic product continues to shrink as a result, and this development is only partially offset by growth in non-oil sectors. The Saudis are facing a dilemma, as global recessionary risks are affecting global oil demand. Yet, the kingdom will have to phase out the production cuts in order to get back on track for growth. A shark al-Assad gives us narrative B. The decision by Saudi Arabia and Russia to voluntarily continue to cut oil production reflects OPEC's proactive policy, to limit global oil market volatility and is not price-driven. Thanks to the precautionary measures, which are regularly reviewed, the global oil market is moving in the right direction of a balanced supply-demand balance. In order to keep the market stable as demand is expected to increase due to the global economic recovery, the world needs to ramp up investment in all types of energy sources, including oil. Next up, Narrative C from Bloomberg. While Riyadh and Moscow officially maintain close cooperation, in reality that partnership is eroding when it comes to output cuts. 
while Saudi Arabia continues to carry the main burden of balancing the oil market and propping up prices. Exports of Russian crude oil are rising, with Moscow recently reducing its promised production cuts. This is no surprise as Russia's natural gas exports have fallen sharply, and Moscow is even more reliant on its oil sales to fund its war effort in Ukraine. The issue is likely to come up at the next OPEC Plus meeting. With all of these spins, the nerds from Metaculus weren't going to be left out. They've got a narrative as well. They say there's a 30% chance that oil exports will account for less than 70% of Saudi Arabia's exports in the first quarter of 2024. Blinken makes an unannounced Iraq trip amid regional tensions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Arab News, Reuters, AFP, Voice of America and ABC News. As part of a multi-country tour of the Middle East, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken paid an unannounced visit to Iraq on Sunday holding talks with Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani following recent attacks within the country on American forces as well as the ongoing Israel-Hamas conflict. Blinken arrived in Baghdad after meeting Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in the occupied West Bank earlier on Sunday, as well as stopping in Cyprus to discuss a potential aid route to Gaza. The visit was not announced due to security precautions. Speaking after his surprise meeting with al-Sudani in Baghdad, Blinken claimed that attacks or threats targeting U.S. troops by militias that are aligned with Iran were, quote, totally unacceptable. There are approximately 2,500 American troops currently deployed in Iraq. On Saturday night, Iran-backed group Qatalib Hezbollah claimed that Blinken's visit to Iraq would see an unprecedented escalation in response. The U.S. Department of Defense has stated that attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria have increased since Hamas's surprise attack on Israel last month. Blinken continued that militia attacks on U.S. troops were a matter of Iraqi sovereignty, while claiming that both Iraq and the U.S. shared mutual interests in combating the threat. The Secretary of State received a security briefing at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad before his meeting with al-Sudani. The Pentagon has reported that there have been at least 32 attacks on U.S. and coalition military facilities since October 17th in Syria and Iraq, with at least 21 service members being injured. Scott, thanks for laying out those facts. We begin our round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Atal Ayar. The entirety of Blinken's current mission is to prevent Gaza war from spilling over into other regional countries, with powerful elements within the Iraqi state in favor of Iran, alongside an expansion of attacks against U.S. forces. Blinken is attempting to rule out the possibility of further military escalation and violence before it spirals into a disaster that would negatively impact the region's security. Press TV brings us the establishment critical narrative. It is the U.S. that continues to manipulate and stoke tensions in the Middle East to further its geopolitical goals. Iraq is a linchpin in resisting U.S.-Israeli hegemony in the region, and it has laid the groundwork for a new front in the Arab and Muslim worlds, which also includes Iran's regional muscle. The U.S. will soon realize that its presence in Iraq is untenable. The nerds from Metaculus give us a narrative. They say there's an 11% chance that the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors on opposite sides of a war before 2025. Republican Peter Meyer announcing his Senate run in Michigan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Detroit News, Associated Press, Politico, Washington Post, and Roll Call. The former U.S. Representative Peter Meyer, Republican of Michigan, announced Monday he's running in the 2024 Republican primary for Michigan's open U.S. Senate seat. Meyer is joining the field, competing to replace Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow, who announced her retirement in January after more than two decades in her seat. In his announcement, Meyer touted himself as a leader who isn't afraid to be bold, will do the work, and can't be bought. 
Meyer served one term in Congress but lost his West Michigan seat last year after he was one of the 10 House Republicans who voted unsuccessfully to impeach former President Donald Trump over his role in the riots at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Meyer, whose family founded the Meyer supermarket chain, lost to John Gibbs, a former Trump administration official, in the 2022 GOP primary. Gibbs then lost to Democrat Hillary J. Scholten. Among Meyer's Republican competitors are Representative Mike Rogers and former Detroit Police Chief James Craig. Representative Alyssa Slotkin and actor Hill Harper are among those competing for the Democratic nomination. A lot of narratives on this story as well. Axios brings us a Democratic narrative. This is a bad choice by Meyer. Not only did his anti-Trump vote cost him in his last primary election, but Democrats even boosted his radical opponent, betting, eventually correctly, that Gibbs would be easier to defeat in the general election. There are too many forces working against Meyer and for his run to amount to anything that would threaten the Democratic Party. The pro-Trump narrative comes from Daily Wire. Meyer is an unviable candidate. He didn't just betray Trump, the national leader of the GOP, and the former president's supporters by voting for impeachment. His voting record in Congress showed a propensity for voting in step with a Biden administration more than any serious Republican should side with the opposing party. And The Hill brings us the conservative narrative. Peter Meyer is an ethical, constitutional conservative who has a strong centrist appeal. While he voted to impeach Trump, he would also support Trump in unseating Joe Biden in 2024. Meyer speaks to a strong current in the GOP base and will be a contender to be Michigan's next senator. There is a nerd narrative from the nerds from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 63% chance that Republicans will control the Senate after the 2024 elections. Trump testifies in the heated New York civil fraud case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, CBS News, Fox News, Reuters, and the Associated Press. Former President Donald Trump appeared in a New York courtroom Monday as he took the witness stand to testify in a $250 million civil fraud trial in his home state. A defiant Trump blasted the case and sparred with the presiding judge, State Supreme Court Judge Arthur Engeron. The trial stems from a lawsuit by New York Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat, which accuses Trump and his family of inflating the value of their assets and net worth to secure favorable financing and defraud banks. The suit involves the former president, his children, Donald Jr., Ivanka and Eric, and other associates. Shortly into his testimony, Trump decried the unfair treatment of him and his family, leading Judge Engeron to threaten to cut Trump's testimony short. The judge accused Trump of avoiding direct answers and asked Trump's lawyer, Christopher Keese, to, quote, control your client. This is not a political rally. This is a courtroom. Speaking of James, who sat in the courtroom during the testimony, Trump said, this is the opposite of fraud. The fraud is her. He also maintained that many of his properties had been undervalued and that the wrong valuations in question included a disclaimer clause, meaning that the valuations were irrelevant to the lending banks. Unlike the four criminal cases that Trump faces next year, the classified documents case, the Fulton County, Georgia case, the Washington, D.C. election interference case, and the Manhattan inquiry into hush money paid to Stormy Daniels, this civil case doesn't potentially lead to jail time, but it could force Trump to pay $250 million in fines and prohibit the Trump family from doing business in New York. The outcome of the trial will be determined by Judge Engeron alone, who said he was considering drawing negative conclusions from Trump's testimony. In a pretrial ruling, Engeron found Trump liable for overstating the value of his Mar-a-Lago property, and on October 25th, he ordered Trump to testify to determine if Trump violated a limited gag order. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from PJ Media. 
Anyone who isn't completely blinded by their desire to destroy Donald Trump by any means necessary knows that the former president is being politically persecuted unlike any figure in American history. And he has every right to fight against this political warfare. No matter what the Democratic establishment does, President Trump keeps rising in the polls as the American people wake up to the weaponized justice system that exists. While corrupt prosecutors look for any loophole to attack Trump, the former president is ramping up his efforts to retake the White House and make America great again. Democratic narrative counters from MSNBC. As Donald Trump takes the stand in one of his many ongoing trials, he continues to display erratic behavior. Trump has perpetrated notorious fraud for decades and earned his overinflated fortune through nepotism and disregard for the law. And he is finally being held accountable for his unscrupulous behavior. It's looking like he won't be able to dissuade or intimidate the judge in this case, which is a bad omen for his mountain of legal battles. The Metaculous Prediction community is at it again with their nerd narrative. They say there's a 56% chance that Donald Trump will be convicted of at least one count in his federal court cases before the end of 2024. Over 150 have been killed as a powerful earthquake rattles Nepal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Hindu, NDTV, Reuters, BBC News, and Associated Press. At least 157 people have been killed after a powerful earthquake hit a remote region of Nepal on Friday night, officials announced Saturday. Authorities said hundreds have been injured, though these figures, along with the death toll, are expected to rise as the search for the survivors and the debris of collapsed homes and buildings continues. According to Nepal's National Seismological Center, the 6.4 magnitude earthquake's epicenter was in the village of Ramadanda, some 300 miles west of the capital of Kathmandu. The U.S. Geological Survey put the magnitude at 5.6. As the earthquake, which struck around 11.47 p.m. local time, was followed by at least three strong aftershocks, many residents reportedly spent the rest of the night outside. The earthquake's tremors were also felt in several districts of northern India, including the capital, New Delhi. Meanwhile, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has promised to extend, quote, all possible assistance. Earthquakes are common in landlocked Nepal. A massive 7.8 magnitude earthquake in 2015 killed some 9,000 people and reduced over 1 million structures into rubble. Thanks, Eric. Narrative A on this story comes from India today. Nepal is nestled in the world's most seismically active region on a major geological fault line where the Indian and Eurasian tectonic plates collide, forming the Himalayas and making earthquakes a regular occurrence. Not much can be done to protect the country and its neighbors from this unfortunate geographical feature, which puts the lives of those living in the area at risk. Narrative B comes from BNN. While there's no way to accurately predict when exactly an earthquake will occur, Nepal's situation becomes more problematic because of its flimsy buildings, which can't withstand powerful earthquakes, and growing poor population in rural vulnerable areas, which hamper rescue efforts and contribute to the higher death toll. Nepal must develop mechanisms to quickly and effectively respond to earthquakes to protect its people and national assets. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that at least 79,100 people will die as a result of the most deadly earthquake between the years 2020 and 2029. You know, Eric, one of my one of my best friends was just in the hospital in Kathmandu, for real. Really? What was one of your best friends doing in Kathmandu? He was trying to hike up Everest and he had a uh, health situation. He had to get airlifted out. And then uh, the nearest, you know, real, real hospital, because he really needed help. He was having real trouble and, and they, they airlifted him to Kathmandu, and that's where he was. He's okay now, but uh, yeah, that was just a month or so ago. A Philippines radio journalist is shot dead on air in a brazen killing. 
Here, the facts as agreed upon by CNN, CBS, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, and Insider. Juan Humalan, a radio host in the Philippines, was shot live on air on November 5th, making him the 199th journalist to be killed in the country since 1986. Humalan, who went by the name DJ Johnny Walker, was shot by an unknown attacker while broadcasting in his home in Kalamba Town in Misamis Occidental Province. Police say that an investigation is ongoing to identify the gunman and see if the shooting was related to Humalan's broadcast work or a personal matter. The attacker gained entry into Humalan's home-based radio station by pretending to be a listener before shooting him twice, stealing his gold necklace and fleeing on the back of an accomplice's motorbike. A video of the attack recorded on the show's Facebook Live broadcast shows Humalan looking off camera before two shots are heard. The attacker was not visible on the Facebook Live stream and police are looking to see if security cameras installed in the house or at nearby properties recorded anything. President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. condemned the attack in a statement posted on X and said he had ordered the Philippine National Police to thoroughly investigate Humalan's death and bring the attackers to justice. Humalan is the fourth journalist to be killed since the president took office in June last year. The Philippines, which is ranked 132 of 180 countries on the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index, is considered to be one of the world's most dangerous places in the world for journalists. Those were the facts, and our first spin is coming from The Guardian. It's a pro-establishment narrative. Attacks on journalists can't be tolerated, and people who threaten the freedom of the press must face consequences. President Marcos and his administration fully support any and all efforts to find and prosecute those who committed this heinous crime. Manila is dedicated to halting this unacceptable trend of danger to members of the press across the Philippines. And Al Jazeera brings us the establishment critical narrative. The Philippines is one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a journalist, and sadly, this has not changed under the leadership of President Marcos. Manila has a historically awful record for prosecuting killers of journalists. There are deep institutional issues nationwide that must be addressed to protect members of the media from heinous attacks like these. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, November 7th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.